The question is simple. What is your favorite movie? It's a question that I ask of everyone I meet and I'm always fascinated by the answer. It says so much about the person and oftentimes their answer says a lot about what they value, their interests, and who they are as a person. Each episode, I'll be sitting down and talking to someone about their favorite movie and what makes it so special. This is the Cinematic Gold Podcast. Welcome, welcome back to the Cinematic Gold Podcast. I am your host, Cole Keedy. Now guys, I'm super excited for today's episode as we'll be doing something a little bit different from what we've done thus far. So we're living in an age now where just about anything can be created using computer-generated effects, or CGI, which provide a way to make movies that weren't possible even 30 years ago. However, some films and their directors use this technology to create fake environments and stunts to make their movie more impressive or believable. I myself am a bit torn on the subject. I mean, I like when it's done believably, but really hate when it's done poorly. However, in the world of directors, some groups of them, referred to as traditionalists, that think CGI is taking the easy way out, and I'd have to agree with them. One of them is famed director and the subject of today's Cinematic Gold episode, Christopher Nolan. In his words, If anything, I'm less inclined to have CGI shots now. The more you work with computer graphics, the more you understand the strengths and weaknesses of it. If you're trying to create a shot from scratch using computer graphics, it always has an unreal quality to it, no matter how well the work is done. So Christopher Nolan was born July 30th, 1970 in London, England. He loved creating short films even in his childhood. One of his first films, Memento, released in 2000, received major praise within independent film groups but was only a minor success in the Hollywood industry and its use of special effects. One of his films, Memento, released in 2000, received major praise within independent film groups but was only a minor success in the Hollywood industry, especially with its use of special effects. In fact, even getting it into theaters was a struggle due to just how unique and complex its story was. As frustrating as it was for Nolan, he had no problem getting foreign distributors on board, nor did he have a problem getting film festival audiences and studio execs to like it, but it all came down to the fact that audiences might not be able to follow the storyline. Now if you've seen the movie, then you know what I'm talking about, but I won't spoil it for those who haven't. So take my word for it, the story takes some brain power to follow. Thankfully, Memento was a huge success when it eventually did hit theaters, and was only the beginning for Nolan. His next works, like the Incredible Dark Knight trilogy, including Batman Begins, The Dark Knight, and The Dark Knight Rises, are still considered today to be some of the greatest Batman movies of all time. They became box office hits and brought millions of new fans into the Batman franchise. One of the standout production aspects of this trilogy was in the cameras used. Nolan used IMAX cameras, at least for the last two films, a first for non-documentary or nature films at the time. The cameras started to be used for select scenes in The Dark Knight, and there were only four of them in the world at the time, one of which was accidentally destroyed during filming. Considering that each camera costs, oh, I don't know, only half a million dollars, I consider that a pretty big loss. You can actually find footage of it getting destroyed online, it's pretty entertaining, but also very sad. Okay, let's move on. Other notable films after the Dark Knight trilogy include Inception and Interstellar, which were equally as successful. During this period in his film career, and in spite of his film budget opportunity rising, he continued to work on what his directing style should be, and how to replicate more scenes without using CGI. So by the time Nolan released the Dark Knight film, CGI had made incredible strides. By 2004, motion capture had been developed, in which an actor or actress is put in front of multiple cameras, all pointed at their face, and can record the angles of the actor recording dialogue. The cameras would then be pieced together to create a 170 degree view of the actor, and would be generated with a computer for an animated movie. The first full feature film to do this was The Polar Express, released in 2004. It definitely wasn't perfect, the eyes looked classy and doll-like, and the facial expressions looked far from real. However, it did improve over time and was used in James Cameron's Avatar, released in 2009, which was released one year after The Dark Knight, which was 2008. 
So this raises some questions. Why does Christopher Nolan still use practical effects? How do Nolan's directing choices and directing style differ from other directors? What are some of the effects that precedes his career as a filmmaker? In the first episode of what I'll be calling Director Deep Dive, we'll be taking a look at Christopher Nolan and the film style and techniques that he uses to make his movies. Now, effects in film go as far back as film itself. At the birth of movies, effects were as little as a cutscene or the lighting that was used to set the mood and portray to the audience how they should be interpreting the film. To the advanced viewer, Nolan has taken cues from films as far back as the 50s or the 60s, with a particular focus on science fiction. As some of you may know, sci-fi films are pretty tricky to film using practical effects, and if not done right, the reality of them can be easily broken. This is very apparent in lots of sci-fi movies that were released in the 1950s to the early 2000s. In The Terminator, for example, released in 1984, there's a scene where the Terminator, played by Arnold Schwarzenegger, is looking in the mirror, and his cybernetic parts can be seen under his skin, and it really wasn't done in an effective way. Even though it was 1984, long before any 3D face tracking or any advanced CGI, the 1980s practical effects were limited to common supplies and makeup. In spite of that, the effects still left a lot to be desired, even if the production department couldn't perfect it. Fast forward to modern day, there are still sci-fi films that seem to be missing that dimension of realism, and leave yourself asking, is that real? It's something that I unfortunately see time and time again, and it snaps me out of a movie so fast I almost get whiplash. For example, I just saw the 2022 film The Batman. I won't spoil anything, but there is an elaborate stunt scene, and the way this person falls and rolls on the ground makes it super obvious that it was CGI. I really wish I hadn't noticed it since it immediately unimmersed me from the film, and I was really enjoying the immersion that this film and the vibe it gives off thus far. So while we have the cheap, sometimes inconsistent CGI of today, the 20th century had the world of miniatures and practical effects. One movie that comes to mind for me is 2001 A Space Odyssey, which was released in 1968 and directed by Stanley Kubrick, and it's a sci-fi icon in the film industry. It did what Star Wars did to space movies in the 1980s, which was to revolutionize effects in the sci-fi genre. One scene in particular is when Dave is walking along the inside of the cylinder-shaped spaceship, walking past computers, bathrooms, and beds. Keep in mind, this was decades before CGI could be used in this way. CGI was still in its quote-unquote Tron phase. Regardless, I like to think that Kubrick would have made the decision not to use CGI either way. He seemed like the kind of director to not take the easy way out and to go big or go home. So, inspired by Kubrick's dedication to the spaceship effect, Nolan wanted to recreate the realistic look of being able to manipulate gravity, which is why he decided to have the hotel hallway scene in Inception on a similar centrifuge design that Kubrick had achieved in 2001. To quote Nolan, I grew up as a huge fan of Kubrick 2001 and was fascinated by the way in which he built that centrifugal set so that the astronauts could jog all around and upside down. I found his illusions completely convincing and mind-blowing. It was one of those rare instances that, when you find out how the trick is done, it's even more impressive. This illustrates Nolan's love for practical effects in film and learning the fantastic ways that the effects can be accomplished. So we've already established that Nolan isn't a fan of modern special effects, as shown in most of his films, but by far his least favorite is the dreaded green screen. Now I'm sure most of you are aware of what a green screen is, but essentially it is a technique of putting a subject in front of an all green background, which can then be composited into virtually anywhere using software. The earliest form of this technique was the double exposure effect. Pioneered by George Melies back in 1898, he used it in a silent film titled, well, it's a French title, so I'm just going to read the English one, Four Heads Are Better Than One. In the film, Melies appears to possess the ability to take off his heads, yes, heads is plural, and place them down on the tables next to him. And the way that the effect worked was surprisingly simple, thanks in part to how film itself works. The way that film used to work, the individual film reels or strips, was that you would film a shot and each frame of the film would be exposed to an individual film's cell. 
So in the case of Melee's double exposure method, he would cover up parts of the actual film where the heads would be using blackened glass. He would then film himself walking around and mime the action of, quote, pulling off his heads. Then he would rewind the film and re-record, but expose the parts that were covered by the glass and film himself acting out the heads, creating the final product. It didn't look too realistic, however. You can look up the film online, the footage is super shaky and distorted, and the spot around where Melee's head would have been wasn't cut out perfectly. But in spite of this, the effect was still very impressive for the time, and when Melee showed it to audiences, they were really blown away at it. This is the first time they had seen anything even remotely close to something like this. Since that effect, the art of green screen continued to evolve. Examples of this included the glass shot, which involved painting the effect, typically a background or sky, onto a pane of glass, then placing it between the shot and the camera, lined up with where the painted shot should be. This eventually evolved into the traveling mat, which solved the issue of not being able to move the camera or have a subject walk in front of the mat. Once color film was developed, filmmakers had a major problem. The old ways couldn't be applied, so they had to start from scratch. This is when the first use of what we now know as green screen or blue screen was used. And as many filmmakers can tell you, it really almost never looks very convincing. The colors always look just a tad off, and the subject always has this like fine line of blue or green or some kind of artifacting around them. It doesn't look that great. All of these cinema effect milestones are so vital to the success of green screen and to the way Christopher Nolan creates his films. Nolan still shoots his movies on anamorphic 35 or 65mm film cameras, so the color difference system would definitely be something he would use, and the evolution of the green screen has shown that making the effect believable is possible. But Nolan doesn't see it that way. Because Nolan isn't one of your typical directors, he has such a unique perspective on the world and how a film can be perceived. Take Inception, for example. Nolan's sci-fi films are some of his best works and contain that extra dimension of surreal imagery to them. The plot is one that most people know, but can be extensively complicated and debated at great lengths. In Inception, the goal is to plant an idea into another person's subconscious, which is termed as Inception. It's a theory of dream manipulation technology, being able to plant ideas into or steal ideas from a person. So Nolan conceived the idea almost a decade before the movie actually went into production. Quoting a conversation between Nolan and his brother, in that slightly weird, discombobulated sleep, I discovered that you can actually have active dreams, and that when you realize you are dreaming, you can control the dream. Nolan was fascinated by this concept and incorporated a lot of ideas from lucid dreaming into the movie, like asking yourself, if you were to go to a book and read it, would you be able to? His answer in both scenarios was yes, because your mind would be putting the words on the page. The same could also be said for picking up sand, would your brain process each grain. Another quote from Nolan was, What this immediately suggests, forgetting the alleged firewall between creation and perception in your brain, is the infinite potential of the human mind. To me, that is what is exciting. All of Nolan's scripts go through a long process, but none compared to Inception. Like I mentioned before, there was about an eight-year waiting period, and following the massive success of The Dark Knight, he wanted to do something big. He went to Warner Brothers with an original concept film and a $160 million budget. Luckily, Warner Brothers was familiar with his work because they had worked with him on Batman Begins and The Dark Knight. Nolan had approached them eight years prior with the film, but said that he would come back in a few months with some changes added, but it took him a little longer than he anticipated. Emma Thomas, Nolan's wife, talked about this, saying he would come back to the script every few years, tweak a little bit, think a little bit more, and after almost a decade of refinements, Nolan was finally happy with the script and sent it to Warner Brothers. The practical effects in the 2008 epic Inception, for example, are by far the most elaborate out of any Nolan film to date and adds to the quality of the film. The big effect that stands out to the viewer is, of course, the hotel hallway fight scene. For context, the main characters, Cobb and Arthur, are in the process of infiltrating Fisher's mind to plant an idea in his head. 
They are going through the different levels of Fisher subconscious as their bodies are left in the real world and the dreams before them. All the stacked up dreams as well as reality affect them so if they fall or are injured in another level up, it will change how the world around them moves. This happens in one dream where they are in a van being attacked by Fisher's guards. In the dream below, they have sent everyone else into the next dream, but Arthur stays behind to ensure no one else is killed. During which he finds a guard while the van carrying everyone a few dreams above crashes and starts tumbling down a hill. As Arthur and the guards are fighting, the hallway is quote unquote rotating because again, they're flipping down a, a big hill. So they're fighting each other while the hallway is rotating. And believe it or not, this effect was done without use of computers. So in the movie, Nolan had achieved the goal to have the 100 foot hallway on a huge centrifuge. Nolan was super keen on doing it big, saying it was very much the sort of grand scale physical effect that can make an action film go to that next level. He had the actors in the scene practice for over two weeks prior to shooting, having them familiarize themselves with how the hall moved. One little detail I love about Inception is Nolan had achieved the goal to have a 100 foot hallway on a huge centrifuge. Like I mentioned before with 2001, Nolan was super keen on doing it big, saying it was very much the sort of grand scale physical effect that can make an action film go to that next level. He had the actors in the scene practice for over two weeks prior to shooting, having them familiarize themselves with how the hall moved, and this showed the incredible amount of stubbornness that Nolan has with doing shots practically, rather than relying on CGI. And I mean, yes, it would have saved a lot of money and time to do it digitally, but this is why the scene is so unique and vital to the film's story and to its success. Now, I don't think it's too bold to say that The Dark Knight is arguably Nolan's best work. It holds the spot of the fourth highest rated film on IMDb and is still the most profitable Batman film of all time, although I can't say that 2022's The Batman doesn't have a chance at the top spot. The Dark Knight also has an incredibly long runtime, coming at just under 2 hours and 40 minutes. For most directors, taking on an icon such as Batman can be incredibly intimidating. Respecting the genre while also making it unique is a difficult task to say the least. Perhaps the biggest challenge for Nolan wasn't that he didn't think he could do it, but rather that he already had. Quoting Nolan, I never thought we'd do a second. How many good sequels are there? Why roll those dice? But once I knew where it would take Bruce, and when I started to see glimpses of the antagonist, it became essential. And he had good reason to believe this, as sequels were, and still to this day, notorious for not being memorable or even objectively good, which makes it all the more shocking and incredible that not only did The Dark Knight exceed Nolan's expectations, it did better than Batman Begins and any other Batman film that had come out at the time. Nolan has also been known to push his effects department to the limit in terms of what can be achieved, one example being the semi-truck flip scene in The Dark Knight. Pulling off the scene took a considerable amount of effort and was something that couldn't be done more than once or twice. Nolan talked about this in a documentary about The Dark Knight where he was talking to his uh, practical effects supervisor, Chris Corbold, where he said, I said, Chris, I'm sure you can find a way to do this, recalled Nolan, because that's who you are and that's what you do. And he sort of shrugged his shoulders and said, okay, fine, and found a way to do it. I had strong reservations about the truck flip, admitted Corbold, and so I kept niggling at Chris, Nolan, about how he could compromise to make it more achievable, but he wasn't having any of it. This amusing conversation from Nolan and Corbold perfectly sums up how stubborn Nolan was about practical effects and directing as a whole. Once he sets his mind to it, there was no changing it. In The Dark Knight, Chris Corbold and a special effects team achieved the effect and how they did it was absolutely perfect. Look, we're gonna have to do a test and try it once. If it looks like we're not getting anywhere near that truck to flip over, I'll go for it. If not, we'll have to do a model or CGI. And at that point, we got our guys together and built the biggest piston I've ever seen in my life. And as you might expect, there were a number of conflicts that arose the day of shooting. It was pouring down rain and the whole crew was worried of the accuracy of the flip. 
Nolan wanted to do it on an actual street in Chicago's financial district. And Corbold was obviously worried, saying, if it deviated 10 degrees off of a straight line, it would go right through the front of a bank. And thankfully for both of them, it didn't crash into any buildings, and the shot in the movie looks absolutely amazing. I suggest you watch it if you haven't seen it already. Now it goes without saying that Nolan's visual effects today are a marvel in the film industry. His films continue to wow audiences, and I would say that they'll continue to do so for decades to come. From a 100-foot spinning hotel hallway centrifuge to a custom-built Batmobile, Nolan knows how to achieve the effects desired for his films. Now as much as I love all of Nolan's films equally, I'd have to pick Interstellar as my favorite. I honestly consider it the 21st century equivalent to 2001 A Space Odyssey, only the plot of Interstellar is just leagues ahead of 2001. People can argue with me on that, but I'd sooner go back and watch this movie compared to 2001. Alright, so let's talk about the effects of Interstellar for a bit since there was a lot of work that went into this movie as well. For example, the end scene with the multidimensional bookcases. For context, Cooper finds out that this event in time is a paradox and that humans far into the future have led him through the events of the film and allowed him to communicate to his daughter and how to fix the issue of gravity. So Cooper is dropped into a strange dimensional anomaly where all around him are infinite versions of his daughter's bedroom, referred to as the Tesseract. Which also explains that her ghost that we've been seeing manipulating books and dust was actually Cooper the whole time. So most of this scene, like the bookcases that Cooper's interacting with, was actually built, although extended and composited using CGI, and had McConaughey on wires floating around inside the actual set. So this is a theme of some of Nolan's films, where CGI is used, sure, but used in a way to enhance the film, not to use it as a crutch. So there's a great behind the scenes moment that I read about for Interstellar that I wanted to share. So in the scene where the endurance is badly damaged, Nolan wanted a camera attached to the actual ship. So Nolan is talking to the crew about how the scene would be shot. But the model explodes, noted Hunter, concerned that an expensive VistaVision camera might become no more. But Nolan was resolute. Yes, but you need to attach the model to the camera. And again, we see more examples of Nolan not budging on risky and expensive special effects decisions in order to complete the scene. Surprisingly enough, the most grand scale effect in the movie wasn't an effect at all, but a location for filming. So for context, Cooper and the team have already been to two planets, none of which are habitable. They arrive at a new one, which is this gray, bumpy planet with ammonia air and frozen clouds. And the way they achieved this effect was the easiest one of all, which was filming in an actual location. This idea obviously isn't new, as directors have been doing this since the birth of film. The ice planet was filmed on a glacier in Iceland. It is uh, a name that I cannot pronounce, but it was where some of the Batman Begins uh, scenes were filmed as well. And it's this like super awesome glacial area. You can look up pictures of it online. I definitely want to visit someday. It looks pretty sweet. Speaking of The Dark Knight, I probably know what you're thinking at this point. In The Dark Knight trilogy, was the Batmobile real? Did they actually build it? And of course the answer is yes. Not only was one built, but multiple versions of it too. So in the film, Bruce Wayne buys the Batmobile from Mr. Fox, played by Morgan Freeman. Fox explains that in the context of the movie, the car, nicknamed the Tumbler, was supposed to be used by the army as a bridging vehicle. It could jump over a river while towing a rope and lay down a bridge during combat. However, in the context of the film again, they never got the bridge to work. So Nolan had the original concept of the Batmobile written out, with lots of abilities that were never seen in any other iteration. Quoting Nolan, it had to travel at speeds up to 100 miles per hour and be able to accelerate from 0 to 60 in 5 seconds. God, that's so fast. The car would also have to be durable enough to withstand a 60-foot jump and a subsequent hard landing. 
And quoting Chris Corbold again, this is a special effects supervisor for the movie, this was the first time we had built one from scratch. We used existing engines and shock absorbers and wheels and stuff like that, of course, but every piece of the body was custom built. Now this isn't the first time that a Batmobile has been custom made. In the 89 Batman film, the Batmobile exterior was sculpted by hand for the film. That version was more on the cartoonish spy gadget side than the gritty tank light build of the Dark Knight. It featured grappling hooks, oil slick dispensers, and a bat missile. All the same, Nolan's Batmobile is one of my favorites, alongside the 60s Adam West Batmobile and the 2022 Robert Pattinson Batmobile. So to wrap up, Christopher Nolan has created some of the most influential films of his era. He has taken hints from director icons such as Stanley Kubrick, while also adding his own unique twists and changes to them. His no compromises personality has produced some of the greatest practical effects in film and has shown what is possible today that no person or computer can digitally replicate. And although Nolan can be stubborn and hard to reason with, that doesn't mean he is hated. Throughout Nolan's film career, many of his staff as well as actors have applauded him for his outstanding work and pushed him to their limit in the realm of what is possible. Michael Caine, who's appeared in a number of his films, thinks very highly of him. To quote Caine, One Sunday morning, the phone rang, and it was Christopher Nolan. I said, I'm a big fan of yours. Having seen two of his films, Memento and Insomnia, both of which were very good small production thrillers, having now worked with him on five movies, I can say that Christopher Nolan is a multi-talented director on par with Alfred Hitchcock. And since Michael Caine has spent loads of time with Nolan, he has a good understanding of his personality and his directing style and sees how passionate and dedicated he is to each scene in a movie. So yeah, these days it's hard not to look to computers and CGI to take the easy way out for stunts and effects, and it's easy to see that the so-called purest cinema director phase is dying. Film, much like everything else in the world, is ever evolving and changing by technology. However, we shouldn't forget about the films that make this possible, like Star Wars, which paved the way for the sci-fi genre and the modern blockbuster we know today, 2001 A Space Odyssey, which inspired Nolan to build the centrifuge for Inception, and building the Batmobile from scratch just like in 89's Batman. Which is why it's so refreshing to see directors such as Christopher Nolan to go through great lengths like the pioneers of practical effects before him have to create something that no computer can replicate. Alright, thanks so much everybody for listening to this episode. It was super fun to make and nerd out about. I hope you enjoyed it and or you learned something that you didn't know before. Thanks again. This has been your host Cole Keaty, and I'll see you all in the next episode.